Well, good morning again. Glad to have you here. My name is Matt, senior pastor at Bible Center Church. Thank you for braving the blizzard and making it out on a Sunday morning. It's great to see you and to worship the Lord together. I also want to say thank you for the end-of-year giving that you stepped up. Hundreds of folks, hundreds of people, uh, men and women, uh, young and old, stepped up to help us accomplish this goal. I've said a number of times that our December budget is weighed heavily so we can end the year strong, and you all stepped up and more. And so I want to celebrate that. If you remember, we were praying for to meet our budget at about $600,000 to come in uh, in the month of December. And total giving through the month of December exceeded that. And the number you'll see on the screen is $698,268,000. God bless you. Let's celebrate that together. This is not for any of us. This is for the Lord's work in Charleston that we can be a church, not the church, a church Charleston can't live without continue to move forward with strength in 2018. If you're a, a number cruncher and you like seeing all the details, we'll throw this slide up there uh, temporarily, but then it's also in the all-in email, and you can reach out to any of us, and we'd love to get you uh, more of the specifics. But thank you, and I want, I'm reminded that every great move of God involves sacrifice. This offering reminded me of that, but also tomorrow's holiday, Martin Luther uh, King Jr.'s birthday. This year it actually falls, his day actually falls on his birthday, and it reminds us of the sacrifice that he made and the sacrifices that his followers made to make so much progress uh, here in the United States of America. Go back with me, if you will, in time. Let's go back in time together to the early 1960s and think about what we would have heard on the radio at the time. We would have heard uh, uh, the Beach Boys and Surfing Safari or Surfing USA. We would have heard Johnny Cash's Busted. There would be malts and milkshakes poured down at the pharmacy. And in the early 60s, the Vietnam War was just starting to become a curse word in homes across the United States. But travel with me to Birmingham, Alabama, where the city commissioner, the, the commissioner of public safety, Mr. Bull Connor, made it very clear that during his lifetime, there would be no integration of blacks and whites. Not only during his tenure as commissioner, but he said, during my lifetime, I will see to it, there is no integration. At that time, in the, in by 63, the KKK, was they were blowing up homes with dynamite, blowing up the homes of African Americans with pipe bombs. And so Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. felt led of God to go to Birmingham and to make a difference. I'm reminded that in 1963 of April, April 63, he uh, pulled together a number, actually hundreds of African-American families, and he told them that if you had children 12 years of age or older, he was inviting them to come to the nonviolent peaceful protests. He knew something about movements that they always travel on the back of the young. And so he brought in these hundreds of students and teenagers and adults of all ages, and they began the peaceful protest, and all of them were arrested, including Dr. King. Well, no, many of them didn't have the money to pay bail. Dr. King had the money to pay his own, but refused to post it so he could stay in jail with the rest of them. When his lawyer came to see him, his lawyer noticed two things about him. One, he noticed that he was wearing denim. He wasn't wearing his normal uh, suit and his normal tie, but he was wearing denim. 
By this time, he had been in jail 29 times and said that he was tired of being uncomfortable in jail and wanted to be comfortable because he knew he was going to go there. He was also starting to write what's later called the Birmingham Letters or the Birmingham Letter. It started by him writing it on the newspaper because the guards refused to give him paper. But when his lawyer, Mr. Jones, Clarence Jones, would come to visit him, he would bring him, smuggle in little pieces of legal pad. He would give it to him, let him write part of his letter, and then he would smuggle it back out because he knew the guards wouldn't check him. Over a period of days, these letters emerged. Now, before we share what's in the letters, let's talk a little bit about his motivation. What motivated Dr. King to do what he did? Well, he said two things were his motivation. One, it was the cross of Jesus, and two, it was cowards. Nothing motivated him like the cross of Jesus or cowards. He often preached on the passage that I'm going to preach out of this morning. He would preach on it in Matthew as well as in Mark, also in Luke. It's the same story mentioned in all three Gospels. Let us deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. But when it comes to cowards, there were eight white ministers in Birmingham that wrote an article in the Birmingham paper essentially uh, disowning or discounting Dr. King, saying that he was being impatient, that he was rushing things, and that this movement was just causing trouble and upsetting the status quo. And so Dr. King wrote this letter, much longer letter, but listen to this excerpt and think about his heart. He wrote, We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed towards gaining political independence, but we still creep at horse and buggy pace. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation, referring to those eight white ministers, to say, wait, slow down. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled men curse and kick and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering, this one got me, as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television, And you see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children. And you see the ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking daddy, why do people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you're humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs that read whites or colored, then you understand why we find it difficult to wait any longer. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over And men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. I was just moved by the sacrifice of this movement. And even more so, this week I was moved by the sacrifice of Jesus. 
Jesus, essentially, as he's launching the church, launching Christianity, says things that are revolutionary. He makes statements that are beyond radical. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In the next few minutes, I want to explain what that doesn't mean. I want to explain what it does mean. And then I want to tell you why it's so important that we do it. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 9, and let's read this full passage from Jesus. I invite you to stand with me if you're able. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 22. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And they must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whosoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and of the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's talk for a minute about what Jesus is not saying. First of all, he is not saying that pleasure is sinful. Jesus is not saying that pleasure is sinful. Since Jesus is God and God created all things, we know that Jesus invented pleasure. I put some references in your notes, and going forward, you're going to see some references. We might not always cover them, but feel free to study them and look them up throughout the week. But in Luke chapter 7, they they say that Jesus was known for being someone who ate and drank with sinners. Jesus knew how to have fun and enjoy a good time. In Luke chapter 14 and chapter 15, in these two chapters, five different parties are mentioned. If you believe that Jesus is a fuddy-duddy, read Luke 14 and 15. In Luke 14, there's two stories about how to party. In Luke 15, there's three parties. When the lost sheep is found, when the lost coin is found, and when the lost son is found. And Jesus insinuates that if you like these parties, wait till you see the party in heaven every time one sinner comes to faith in him. There's parties with the angels in the presence of God. Jesus' parables show a deep love for creation. He drew material from farming and fishing and flowers and friendships and birds and baking and money and management and art and music and nature and laughter. The Apostle Paul, being mentored by Jesus himself, writes to young Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 4.4, he says, Everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That means it's okay for us to enjoy running and kayaking and reading and going to Little League baseball games and riding bikes and walking on the boulevard and watching TV and and going bass fishing or visiting amusement parks or enjoying some of our local festivals. It's great for us to enjoy the music at Bluegrass Kitchen or Bridge Road Bistro. And it's going to be good for some of you to go to the International Car Show this week. These things are 
okay. God made us to enjoy pleasure. Today at 1 o'clock, actually 1.05, we have a Q&A after the service. If you're interested in staying around, we'd love to have you. At 1 o'clock, though, we're going to cut it off, especially today is a big day for those of us that like football. And at 1.05, we're going to watch the Steelers beat the Jacksonville Jaguars. And so in honor of that today, I've worn my Pittsburgh Steelers socks. These are my lucky socks. If it doesn't work, I'll never wear them again. But we think about enjoying the gifts of life. It is okay. 100 years after Jesus, so 1,900 years ago, a man by the name of Irenaeus wrote this. The glory of God is a human being being fully alive. That is the glory of God. I hope you're fully alive today. I hope you're enjoying the pleasures of God. So when Jesus said, deny yourself, he's not saying that pleasures are sinful. Number two, he's not saying that the secular is bad and the sacred is good. He's not saying that the secular is bad and the sacred is good. Again, I've included two passages, one in Luke 6. The Sabbath law was that you couldn't do work, of course, on the Sabbath. Jesus had been hungry, his disciples were hungry, and as they're going through the fields after a full day of ministry, they pick grain, either to eat directly or maybe even to go and make some bread. And so the the religious leaders saw him doing it. Jesus asked him a question. He says, was the Sabbath made for man or was man made for the Sabbath? In other words, did God give us these laws, even in the Old Testament, so that we could propagate the law? Or was the law given as a guideline to bless mankind? The same thing in Luke chapter 11. In Luke 11, Jesus goes to the home of a Pharisee and he doesn't wash his hands properly. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus was dirty. This is flu season and I watch some of you, you know, some of you shake hands time. You love to hug and you shake hands. You practically kiss every person around you. And, And some of you are like maybe like air fist bump, right? You're like... A little bit of this. This isn't a germ issue, what we're talking about in Luke 11. It's a ceremonial issue. And so when Jesus doesn't wash his hands, he doesn't do a tradition that was common. And they begin to, they begin to scold him. And Jesus says this, Woe to you Pharisees, in Luke 11, you clean the outside of your lives, but inside you are full of death. It's important for us to understand the context of the gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, you're seeing this transition from the days when they were under the Old Testament Mosaic Law, and they were moving into the age of the church, the dispensation, big fancy word, of the church. And so as they're moving into this, you're seeing the law and the traditions and the legalism begin to fade off. And Jesus is now establishing the new covenant, a new law, where God's law is written on the hearts of believers which is why he writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That means that that for the Christian, there is no difference between secular and sacred. God says if you're a believer, everything should be sacred. How you eat, how you drink, how you spend your money, how you use your free time, how you make love to your spouse, how you discipline your children, how you work, whether it be a hospital, a school, an office building, a courthouse, or even a church. It's all to be done in gratefulness as a gift from God 
himself. Now, in West Virginia, we're still, uh, we're still growing and learning, and I'm on the journey with you, but there's been a common tradition where a lot of this Old Testament legalism gets carried over into the church. I grew up this way. I'm, God's still working it out of my heart. But I remember the first time, I've been here almost two years now, the first time I came in to the sanctuary, to here I go say it, sanctuary. I'm about to tell you don't call it a sanctuary, and I call it a sanctuary. Come into the auditorium or the worship center with a cup of coffee. And I come in, and I can just remember, you know, several people like, are we allowed to have coffee in the sanctuary? The auditorium is like, yeah, sure, why not? I mean, if it keeps you awake while I'm preaching, I'll do anything to keep you awake while I'm preaching. Sure. And I've learned that there's this tradition in West Virginia that, like, it's, like, unholy to have coffee in the sanctuary. I want to dispel that. I just want to dispel that. Now, if that's your personal feeling, please, don't do anything to violate your conscience. Don't do that. But this is not the sanctuary, Right? According to 1 Corinthians, this is the sanctuary. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So do I believe that you can have coffee in the sanctuary? Yes. At 5 o'clock this morning, I got up, had my Dunkin' Donuts coffee, and I poured two cups of coffee into the sanctuary. And it tasted great. So it's okay. There's not this sacred and secular divide. We're under the new covenant. Certainly there are things that are off limits. But wearing Steeler socks on the stage is not one of them. It's okay. So pleasure, sinful, no, that's not what Jesus was saying. Secular is bad, sacred is good, no, that's not what Jesus was saying. There's a third thing Jesus wasn't saying. Jesus wasn't saying ignore your feelings. Ignore your feelings. We see this in three places in Luke, but we see it all throughout the Bible. But just sticking systematically in the gospel of Luke. In chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus' heart was moved with compassion. In chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus experienced great joy. In Luke 19, 41, Jesus cries over Jerusalem. So to deny yourself doesn't mean to ignore your emotions. Now, we all know people who are controlled by their emotions, and that's not healthy. But for us to deny and suppress and push down our emotions is to deny the way in which God created us. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, Paul Peter writes, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Let's keep that up on the screen for a minute. Having grown up in church, this is the way I've heard it taught many, many times. And I can't remember where. It may have just been once and it's many, many times echoing in my mind. This verse is often understood to mean this. If you came in here today and you've got burdens and you've got, you're just down and whatever you're feeling, you're anxious, brother, if you'll just cast your burden on the Lord, it'll go away. So cast your burden on the Lord once for all and leave here and go have a party the rest of the day. And I would try to do that. But that's not emotional health. That's not spiritual health. That's not the book of Psalms. When you look at the book of Psalms, you've got David writing the vast majority. That cat had issues. He was constantly going to God and saying, God, I hate this person. Kill this person. God, I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. I'm angry. I'm even mad at you. And David was, what was he doing? He wasn't being rebellious. He was telling God what he was feeling. I have learned through counseling and through the help of good friends that I'm like the master repressor. Right? Like, I don't think I deny it. Maybe I'm in denial for denying it, but you can analyze me later. 
I think I see problems, but I like to just push them down. So burdens that you're carrying, instead of just constantly giving them to the Lord, it's like just, just hang on to them, push them down. Burdens that I'm carrying, push them down. But I'm learning those things don't stay down. At some weird, awkward time, they have a way of regurgitating. They have a way of, of coming back up. And so this is an ongoing casting. Keep casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then lastly, number four, the fourth thing Jesus wasn't saying was he wasn't saying busyness equals spirituality. Busyness does not equal spirituality. In Luke chapter 10, he tells the story of two women uh, Mary and Martha. If you remember, Martha was very, very busy. She was doing a lot of things. Jesus came to visit their house, and Martha scurrying around, busy. Her life is fragmented, pressured, filled with distraction. Even if Martha, I believe this, just a hunch, even if Martha had sat down and outwardly stopped working, I'm convinced Martha inwardly would still be distracted. She was touchy, she was irritable, she was anxious. And she, you know, for those of us who are control freaks, we know we're a control freak when we try to tell Jesus what to do. I've, I've read this passage of hundreds of times. This week I noticed it for the first time. In Luke chapter 10, she tells Jesus, tell Mary to come help me. That's what Martha says. She tells God what to do. I've been there, I get it. Trying to tell God what to do. But Mary, on the other hand, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. She's being with Jesus. She's enjoying Jesus. She's loving him. She's attentive. She's quiet. She's taking pleasure in his presence. And Jesus responds and says, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But right now, only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better. Jesus isn't telling us not to be busy. For life can get very busy, and sometimes it has to, with kids and work and ministry. But he's reminding us to live an integrated life, not a disintegrated life. It's that we, yes, we take time for worship and prayer and personal Bible study. We often call these devotions. These are good, and we ought to do these things. But when we go out through life, it's not like that was our spiritual time, and now for the rest of the day, I'm going to do it on my own. Instead, he's saying all of life should be lived in the presence of Jesus when we're busy and when we're not. Jesus isn't telling us to quit working, to quit playing, to quit cooking, to quit taking out the garbage, to quit visiting with friends. But when we do it, let's do it with Jesus. So that's not what Jesus was saying. What was Jesus saying? He says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What is he saying? There's, there's two thoughts that summarize this point. Number one, stop trying to save and control every part of your life. Stop trying to save and control every part of your life. I love how he mentions here in verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me. And he explains it. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. If you're taking notes, verse 24 defines verse 23. Verse 24 further explains verse 23. What does it mean to deny yourself? Stop controlling every part of your life. Stop trying to save yourself. 
Now, we know we can't save ourselves to go to heaven. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. Salvation is the gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. We don't get to heaven by doing good works. It's only by the grace of God. We know that. But for some reason, after, at least for me, after I became a Christian, I felt like, okay, God, you did all the work to get me to heaven. Now it's up to me to do all the work to make it through Monday. Right? Like, as if, like, the cross was the finish line. Finished. I'm going to heaven. Now I've got to slog it out for the rest of my life on my own, by my own strength. And here Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Stop trying to continually save and control your life. We do it with our image. We do it on social media. I've got social. You've got social, most of us. And it's a great tool to connect with other people. But have you noticed how we, we kind of like manipulate or like to control the way we're perceived on social media? Now, there are people right now who are posting probably like they're in some paradise. You know, it's 80 degrees. That's when I really, really struggle with bitterness, right? When it's cold like this, wherever they are. I'm not saying don't do social. i just saying like... What if we, do we really try to present ourselves in a way that's different than who we, we really are? We think our house makes our identity or our car or our job or the restaurants we visit or the vacations we take. Jesus says, no, 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 those things don't make you who you are. Maybe you're trying to control your children Maybe you're trying to control other people at work or maybe you're, you, you have rules and regulations as a part of your life and as you look around the church, you can name all the people who don't live up to your rules and regulations. There's a lot of ways we try to save ourselves. One of my friends just this week uh, graduated from college a year ahead of me and, and found out that he is in the, in the effort of wanting to live an abundant life. He's at middle age. I'm almost to middle age, I guess, but he's at middle age, a little older than me, and decides that Jesus wants him to have an abundant life, and so he's going to leave his family, leave his wife, leave his kids, because he believes there's something else better for him, and God doesn't want him not to be happy. I'm trying to encourage this dear brother, no, 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 no. God calls us to deny those things won't satisfy you. They won't make you happy. You could have all the money and all the world and the best of everything, and Solomon will tell you it won't make you happy. And see, we sometimes think that the opposite of, of, of denying ourselves is self-satisfaction. But here Jesus says, no, that's not the opposite. The opposite of denying ourselves is self-salvation. We're trying to somehow make up for and save ourselves and satisfy ourselves. And Jesus says, no, deny yourselves. We can't save ourselves through food and drugs and getting drunk and pornography. We can't save ourselves by being angry and manipulative in life. We must relinquish control and let the Lord do the saving. I was thinking this week about... A time I went whitewater rafting in North Carolina. It's the only time I've ever been a raft guide. Now, if you want to have a real raft guide, Pastor John's like official five-year raft guide in West Virginia. North Carolina doesn't know anything about rafting, but that's where I went to college. And so just outside of Asheville on the Nantahala River, a group of us, Sarah and I were dating. It was our sophomore year. We were going to go with a big group and go rafting. 
And so we, we go over to the other side of Asheville, and we check in, we pay our money, and the group we're with wonders who the wrath god's going to be. And so the lady behind the counter and I tell them there is no wrath god. These are class twos and threes. At the time, you weren't required to have a wrath god for twos and threes, and so the loudest person in the boat became the wrath god. I don't know why I got picked, but I got picked. And we're going down the Nantahala. It was a beautiful day. You can smell the, the, the pine trees. You can see the laurel blooming. You can feel the mist of the water against your face. You can see the Smoky Mountains off into it. It was just a beautiful day, right? Got my girlfriend in the raft, a few dudes in the raft. We're having a good time. There's a guy in our boat named Jeremy Buker. Jeremy's a great guy, uh, but Jeremy didn't listen. And so uh, Jeremy, as a typical college friend, he gets out and decides he could go down the river with his life vest. He didn't need the raft, at least for that particular section of the river, which again, twos and threes aren't that big a deal. But I saw that we were about to hit the threes. And, and so I said, Jeremy, get back in the boat. The rapids are coming. And Jeremy didn't get in the boat. So Jeremy, get back in the boat. The rapids are coming. Jeremy didn't get in the boat. So we hit the class threes, start going down the rapids, and Jeremy's like bobbing under the water. It's like just spitting him out, and he's screaming like a little girl and pulling him back in and spitting him out. And, and, and we think we've killed Jeremy. So during that time, there's two motivations going on in my heart. One motivation was I really don't want to kill Jeremy. I love Jeremy. He's a good dude. I got to admit, the second motivation was that whole self-image thing, right? Like, I'm like studying to be a pastor. I don't want to be like the pastor who killed Jeremy. So like the whole self-image thing, like, what are we going to do? And we're screaming and, and all that. And so I had this brilliant idea. To, over the right side of the river, there was this tree that was hanging over. And I thought, well, if I can reach over there, Jeremy was kind of like going along slightly behind us, beside us. If I could reach that tree and stop the raft, then we could reach over and grab Jeremy or Jeremy could get the boat. So, you know, you're in college, you're invincible, you're like bubbling with testosterone. And so I thought, I want to stop this raft. So we went under that and they paddled and, and I reached up and I, or under that, and I grabbed that tree and I'm going to tell you, with brute strength, I stopped. But the raft didn't stop, it just kept right on going. I fell in the water. Now there's two of us screaming like little girls and we're bobbing up and down and the spitting us out. Finally, we got to the other side and we ended up being okay. But I learned a valuable lesson that day. You can't control forces that are greater than you. Sometimes you just got to surrender to them. And we can't control the forces of life. And so we've got a choice. Surrender to them or surrender to Jesus. But he says, stop trying to save and control every part of your life. It will kill you. In the positive, he says, this next and last point to this perspective, he says, take up your cross and follow me. So number two, let Jesus save and control every part of your life. Let Jesus save and control every part of your life. At this point in the message, every one of us have fallen short. Every one of us. No matter what I've said, all of us have fallen short, right? Hopefully you've seen yourself in the boat, not the raft, but the boat with me. We're all broken. How do we have hope? Every one of us have tried to satisfy ourselves in some way that doesn't please the Lord. Every one of us. Verse 22 is the answer. Verse 22, the reason we can go on today and tomorrow and the next day in confidence and not shame is because of verse 22. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. 
how in the world can we ever bow our heads and pray again and expect God to hear? It's because Jesus lived the perfect life of sacrifice that you and I could never live. He lived the perfect life. He died the perfect death. And he raised the third day. And so we can have confidence not because we have self-denial, but because he had self-denial. Jesus knew we would struggle with this. He knew we could never fulfill. We knew we could never live the perfect life. And so he did it for us. And because his spirit lives within us, we can have a right self-image. We don't have to worry or wonder about our singleness or, or about our marriages or, or our children. Yes, we have to be obedient. And yes, we have to be faithful. But we don't control life. We can give God our success and our finances and our job placements and our futures and our health and our happiness and our church and even our country and even our world. Jesus says, take up your cross. The disciples knew to what he was referring. Jesus knew that everybody who heard had probably seen a Roman crucifixion. They were all over the countryside. And when somebody was crucified, that criminal, if he agreed to carry his cross or at least his cross beam to the place of his crucifixion was promised, they would minimize the suffering and hasten his death. And so in a way to say, I agree with this sentence, I identify with this life, the criminal would carry his cross, which is why Jesus carried his cross, at least the cross beam. And it's why Luke chapter 23 says that Simon the Cyrene carried Jesus' cross the rest of the way. The cross was a symbol of shame and guilt and suffering and rejection. There could be no more despicable way to die. The crucifixion was not mentioned in polite conversation, and people would no more think of wearing crosses on their person than we would think of wearing gold or silver electric chairs around our necks. Jesus isn't saying that your cross is your boss or your job or your irritable mother-in-law or even your diabetes, as great a suffering as that may be. The cross is not your irritable husband or your irritable wife. Your cross is not your indigestion. No, in this context, Jesus is calling us to make a choice. He is saying, choose now the way of a disciple. Choose to put Jesus and his cross at the center of your life. That you want Jesus to save every part of your life. Not just to get you to heaven, but that you want Jesus front and center. And he calls us to do it daily. Luke is the only gospel writer to mention do this daily, which is why Luke is quickly becoming my favorite gospel writer. He had my number. You know the reason we got to do this daily is because when I wake up, let me tell you how Matt Friend wakes up. You can ask my wife. Well, don't ask my wife. Matt wakes up, besides having bad breath, Matt wakes up not carrying his cross. Matt wakes up at the center of Matt's universe. And I want my wife and my kids and my staff and my church and my neighbors, everybody I just mentioned is either in this service or in the last service. I want them all to think I am the center of the world. And so when I go to the Lord in the morning and have my time of prayer, you may do it differently or at a different time. When I say, Lord, I deny myself, I pick up my cross, I'm not the center of the universe, you're the center of the universe. It helps me remember, oh yeah, 
This is not Matt's world. This is Jesus' world. And I want him to save and control every part of my life. Let me encourage you to do that. What would happen in your family? What would happen in your home? What would happen at your job if we made the Lord front and center as disciples? We signed up to follow a man who died on a cross. Why do we think life is supposed to be easy for us? As Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus will not save you from a wounded life. There's a quote to remember. But he will save you from a wasted life. Jesus will not save you from a wounded life, but he will save you from a wasted life. Why is this so important and we're done? In verse 26, Jesus tells us why it's important, and that is he'll reveal and reward all things in the life to come. Jesus will reveal and reward all things in the life to come. 10,000 years from now, when we're in the presence of the Lord, it's not going to matter how glamorous our portfolio was. What will matter is if we invested in the kingdom. 10,000 years from now, it's not going to matter that the toddler threw up on our church clothes, but it will matter how we respond and love that toddler and bring them up in the nurture and admonition of Jesus. 10,000 years from now, it won't matter that you keep losing your keys, but it will matter if you cuss your wife and kick your dog every time you lose your keys. It won't matter that you're late for work, but it will matter that you were angry all the way there. It won't matter where you go for lunch today, but it will matter who you slander or who you bless. Life matters because the cross matters. Today, stop trying to control and save every part of your life. But as brothers and sisters, let's resolve to let Jesus save and control every part of our lives instead. Let's pray that God makes it so. Let's pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this journey called the Christian life. I pray for Christians right now who may be, I pray, recommitting their lives, picking up their cross and following you. God, save us. I don't believe any of us are going to burn out, but we, some of us, me included, may rust out. I don't want to rust out. I pray today you would help us not to waste our lives. Lord, I pray for those in our service who, who don't yet know you as Savior. I, I pray they'd sign up, that they, they would answer the call that you have in their heart, and that they would sign up to follow Jesus. Only broken people allowed. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you today and You say, man, I know I need to put my faith in Christ. I want to become a Christian. Can I invite you right where you sit to pray and ask Christ to be the Lord of your life? There's no set prayer in the Bible, no magic words. But there are examples of prayers where people were saved. I'm going to pray this prayer, and I invite you in your heart to pray this with me. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't satisfy myself. I know I can't save myself, but I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died on the cross to save me and rose again the third day. Help me to follow you with my life. 
with heads bowed and eyes closed. Today, if you prayed that prayer and you say, Pastor Matt, I prayed it, I meant it, and I know you're not calling me out. I promise not to embarrass you. No one will know who you are between me, you, and the Lord. But you say, Pastor Matt, I prayed that prayer today. I meant it. I just want you to remember me in anonymous prayer that I will begin to follow Jesus with my life. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Just slip up your hand and you can put it right back down. Pastor Matt, I prayed that prayer. Thank God for you and you and you. Three on my left. Thank God for you. Anybody else? Pastor Matt, I prayed that prayer. I meant it. I'm glad that I just remember me in anonymous prayer today. God, I pray for these three. I pray you would help us to be a church that they can't live without. Help us to love them and help them worship and find a place here to belong and a place to serve. God, a place to just grow in grace. Lord, as we sing now, I ask that your grace would be filled in our hearts and we would go out and be good disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with me and let's sing.